Welcome to another PSD cast from Power Systems Design. I'm your host, Alex Paul, and today I've got Akil Doka. He's with Future Facilities, and we're going to talk about uh, thermal management. Isn't that right, Akil? Welcome to the show. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate it. I uh, love talking to you and sharing my knowledge and insights that I can from a thermal management perspective for data centers and for electronics. Well, you know, the beautiful thing about all of this is, uh, as I'm, my audience is uh, very familiar, I often say it, is that power management, is, power management is thermal management and vice versa because any waste in a system is expressed, in an electronic system is expressed as heat. That's correct, Alex. So uh, take, for example, uh, your traditional boxes that you design. You know, if, if a processor is running, a processor is dissipating X amount of power, then if it's not cooled appropriately, then it's not going to perform well. So at the end of the day, power and cooling are two sides of the same coin, and, and you can't obviously ignore one to gain from the other. They both have to be – it's a symbiotic relationship, which means that if you want something to perform really well, as in a, a computer or your smartphone or essentially, you know, let's talk about the big things like the data center, you have to account for power and cooling in a, in a synergistic way, which means that if, if there's power dissipation, then you have to come up with ways to, to try to cool that heat and get it out so your systems perform at the optimal level. Because at the end of the day, it's all about reliability. And obviously, attached to that is the efficiency of the product. And in this case, the product can be a smartphone or it can be as big as the data center, as I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly, Akil. The uh, beautiful part about all of that is elegance in design is rewarded at that level and it cascades throughout the entire design. So if I can make my output uh, circuit a little bit more efficient, and I, if I can make my memory systems and the drivers for my hard drives and all the little things, if I can improve my efficiency in that rack by, say, 5%, mm-hmm. considering that it, I've heard you know, estimates of as little as 1% of the energy in the grid actually drives the logic circuits in a data center, uh, any savings in the infrastructure cascades upward in a very, very sharp uh, yeah, that's correct. Way, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, that would, that's correct. So, I mean, let's say, for example, you know, the, the obviously the emergence of internet, right, we're all connected. The future is where everybody on this planet will be connected in some form or shape, and we're already kind of heading in that direction. But if you, if you kind mm-hmm. of take the the two extreme examples, the, the smallest of the things, such as the, the, the chip that's in your smartphone, um, and the largest of the things, which is essentially the data centers, they're inherently connected. The data that you see on your smartphone is driven by the data that's processed and pushed out from a data center perspective. What do they have in common? The smartphone is a combination of small miniature electronics that are have to perform at their optimal level. And what is the data center doing? It has to process large amounts of data and has to do it as as optimally as it can. So they both are very similar in form and function, except the sizes are different. Any efficiency Mm -hmm. that you can gain in the the cell phone performance, you know, the processor can run 10% faster, the memory can run, you know, 25% 25% uh, faster, you can store more data, is, again, analogous to the data center. The more smartphones get out on the market, more people, the more of the people start using these smartphones and new technology, the more need for data centers. And then that itself connects to the smallest thing 
in our hand and the largest thing that we can ever build, which is, you know, data centers for the information technologies. At the end of the day, they're mm-hmm. so inherently tied. That's the kind of linkage that I see is how the market is being driven. You know, the smallest things are going to be driving the biggest things. When it used to be back in the days, it used to be the biggest thing driving the smallest things. So it's, it's kind of flipped around, which is an interesting paradigm at the moment. Well, I get you completely, Akil. And I, um, well, that's the beautiful thing about this show as well is you wind up agreeing a lot because the beautiful part about engineering is you have to obey the laws of physics and an elegant solution is going to be elegant uh, from multiple levels. That's correct, yeah. So, I mean, just kind of digging deeper into the, the thermal management aspect of it, I mean, the if, if, if you will, the... The, the problem that as engineers we, we love to solve is is to give the best product out to the to the end consumer, right? So if mm-hmm. the phone is overheating for some reason, it creates a bad user experience. And hence, obviously reliability, efficiency, these are all the, the things that an engineer is always worried about. But at the end of the day, mm-hmm. it's about the user experience. If the user is not happy, then the product it will fail. And the user you know, may not necessarily know what the the real problem may be behind the scenes, but as engineers we do. So it's up. It's really the the intrinsic drive as engineers to to create the best, you know, beautifully crafted products that the work, you know, as as they're expected to do. And you know, thermal is is really a key central part of that whole thing because ties in the needs of electrical engineer, ties in the needs of a mechanical engineer, ties in the needs of an industrial designer, and kind of poses this problem to say, well, how do we make all these people happy? How do we make all these engineers who are working really hard to, to on their design and, and how do we make it work? So the, the thermal engineer who, you know, maybe like 15, 20 or even 25 years ago was almost like a, a mechanical engineer trying to solve a problem, went from that level to being central to the overall design of, of, of the electronics. And we've seen this, this progression or this, this growth happen over the last 20 years with the help of, you know, obviously people recognizing that the time to market is very critical for products, people recognizing that reliability, and eventually all that kind of leads into market share and also user experience. So if the user are not happy, they're not, not going to buy a product. So if they don't buy a product, your market share will dwindle, which means at the end of the day, you have to look at the core products that – you know, that you're going to be putting out and the core problems associated with it. So to me, the thermal piece of it is so important. And I think a lot of companies have recognized that. Um, and they have invested in engineers who can actually talk at the language of marketing and straddle that space where if marketing requirement comes in saying that we need to go and create a new product, the thermal engineer is brought in very early on nowadays to be part of that conversation. This was never true, you know, 10, 15, even 20 years ago, where it was more like, okay, we've done this product. Send the thermal engineer. Let's let's see if they can fix it. Now, cost because cost is also a huge factor. The thermal engineer is now an integral part of that early conversations, uh, which I think is is an amazing thing to see the transformation that has happened over the last you know um, ten fifteen years or so. Well, um, and that's a very apt conversation point, Akil, considering the current uh, situation with um, Samsung and the uh, thermal management issues that they're having by trying to cram in a too large battery at the last minute. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, the the this kind of brings the problem that you know we you know we can look at all the different things and saying well the marketing team didn't communicate with the engineer and so on and so forth but I think it it really comes down to you know the, the overall vision of the product if the, if the vision of the product was to have two batteries early on and they felt that they need to do it then then that kind of well, removes the overly the large battery 
you know, overly large batteries. Right? happened at the la- well, the thing is, at the last at the last minute, they, it was designed originally with a 2,800 milliamp hour battery, the same size as the one in the iPhone. And at the last minute, they decided to stick in a larger battery, 32 milliampere hours at the last minute because you know not having a crystal ball and foreseeing the backlash the iPhone for not having a headphone jack they wanted to have a selling point over the iPhone and they made the decision six months before launch and so the engineering team as you pointed out the thermal guys are normally brought in up front today and not bringing in the thermal people up up front, making that decision about the battery pack at the very last minute and forcing the engineering team to shoehorn a solution around it directly resulted in exactly what you were saying, loss of market share, millions of dollars. I mean, basically the... uh, I'm not even going to get into the details because it's not necessary. The product in question is basically dead to the industry, and we know yeah. how much money is involved in a product launch. Yeah, that's correct. I think it goes back to a, a, a uh, essentially a phrase that I read in my in my business class, where why smart people make bad decisions. I don't think anybody in that team had bad intentions, or or essentially thinking that this is you know this is not going to. Uh, to pass, but it's one of those things where you've invested so much money, you invested so much time that you have to somehow just make it work. So one bad decision leads to another, and smart people end up making bad decisions. So it's a, it's a great lesson learned in the sense that if if you're going to make your design change at this late in the game, there's very little an engineer can do because the constraints are so many, right? Your hands are mm-hmm. effectively tied. So so you know it's a it's a great lesson learned to say that you know, the next product that any company should launch and, and, you know, not taking Samsung as an example, but many companies do that, that you have to have that vision. You have to have the, the vision setting, if you will. You have to be able to relate. You have to be able to invent. And you have to be, have to show those leadership qualities that allow you to say, if we're going to release this product, and we're going to do this. We have to do this right because any late changes is going to cost us a lot of money. And that, and we don't want to be the smart people making the bad decisions. Right. So, you know, it's, I think it's less engineering and more decision-making and, and essentially the pressure from a competition to be able to release a product faster than you could and, and kind of missing the checks and balances required at the end of the day that are necessary for a user because now you just completely crush the user experience uh, because the phone doesn't work and the user's not going to buy it. So ultimately, you pay the price for putting something out that's half-baked and, and is something that's not, not going to work, you know? I agree with you completely there, Akil. Well, and, uh, but there you go. It's not the engineer's fault. I'm not blaming the engineering. I'm blaming management for forcing the engineers, as you pointed out, to make a series of compromises that resulted in arguably a billion dollars worth of damage because there's no way that an engineering team can address all of the issues and look all of the use cases and all of the scenarios in which a device can be used. And frankly, uh, it may eventually spark legislative action. And imagine having government regulatory controls on personal electronic devices. It would add a layer of cost that would really punish the industry. That's correct. Yeah, I mean, this this kind of brings in, you know, additional regulations that you talked about. I mean, you you can pick so many engineering examples, right? there's one really good case of uh, Goodrich, uh, the, the brake company, in the 1960s where they had to effectively win a contract. And 
you know, the engineers were forced into a situation where, you know, they had to come up with a design, but the design was flawed. So they had to come up with ways to cover up those things. So, you know, hopefully it doesn't lead down that path, but there's so many examples, poignant examples that we've seen, you know, from Volkswagen just recently trying to, you know, push out their, obviously their their agenda on diesel engines, uh, you know, with uh, you know, not related technology, but obviously Wells Fargo incident, another technological company, uh, Theranos here in the Bay Area, which is struggling with trying to keep their investors and also the, the confidence of the public with related to the blood tests. I mean, there's so many different examples where, you know, the, the overall management got it wrong initially. And then in order for them to, you know, essentially stop the hemorrhage, they had to do all these other things, which essentially is, is one line leading the other or one mistake leading another. And you don't want that happening for a consumer product where millions of people can be affected by it. You know, if, if it's a small subset where it's only 10 people, 20 people, 30 people, the risks are mitigated because the sample size is small. But when you're talking 1 million or you know, 30 million users of a product, your risks are, are high to the company. You know, that's the... That's the kind of vision setting that management should have when they're trying to push out. And then they have to understand the lessons learned from this to say, at the end of the day, we can't just shoehorn in a solution because it may not work. And, you know, they have mm-hmm. to realize that at the end of the day, they have to give the engineers ample time to fix problems because, you know, duct tape and WD-40 can only go so far, you know, and in most cases it works. But it you know, as engineers know that if you have those two, you can fix many problems, but not all the problems, you know, that, that you can't always apply the duct tape and WD-40 solution to everything, you know, and that, that's something that the management has to start to recognize and, and move away from, you know, to a certain extent. Right. Now, let's scale that back up now, Akil, and talk about the data center. Where do you insert the value add to help the engineer make it, run more efficiently, achieve uh, the thermal goals they're trying to achieve. Yeah, so, I mean, data center is an, is an interesting space. I mean, uh, historically, the data center, uh, you know, today we're looking at really innovative new and, you know, new technology coming to become pervasive in the data center market. But if you kind of dial back the, the clock a little bit, um, you know, the, traditionally the data center industry kind of came out of the facility management where, you know, you just needed some rooms and you pumped an air conditioning and you had to cool a bunch of electronics. You know, it was very rudimentary. It was done by a lot of engineers who knew the practical aspects of cooling and power, but, you know, it was done at a much smaller scale. But now if you, if you kind of fast forward to today, I mean, you're looking at massive scale, hyperscale data centers being built by Apple and, and the likes of, you know, even uh, NSA is building a huge facility uh, in Utah. So the scale has just has tremendously increased. And, and that, again, kind of related to the fact that you have to support all this data that people are consuming day in and day out. Um, from a thermal management perspective, you know, the, the engineering, there's, there's essentially two different groups of, of people who uh, – in my, in my view, there's obviously the entire supply chain for data centers, but if you look at, kind of break it down into silos, you have the designers who are the, the MEP firms, mechanical, electrical, and plumbing firms are essentially the, 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 the mechanical design firms building and commissioning these data centers. Um, they're mm-hmm. highly engineering focused, and they, they know what they're, they're, they're doing. Then in the middle, you have the vendors, the supply chain vendors who are uh, you know, providing cables, they're providing racks, they're providing the infrastructure for the equipment, and eventually all this is, is going to the owner-operator who owns and operates and manages the data center. So there's only one person cutting the check, which is the, the owner-operator, which is on the right-hand side. 
the, the gap that, that essentially exists is that when the data center is, is designed and commissioned, there's a lot of engineering that goes into play because it is an engineering product at the end of the day, structurally, mechanically, and thermally. Mm-hmm. So they have to provide the best product they can from an engineering perspective. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, when it actually goes into the hands of owner-operator, it's not looked at as an engineering commodity. It's looked at as a, a essentially a cost center. This is there because we want to make use of it. We paid up for money. We want to make the use of it. Unfortunately, the engineering at that point is kind of uh, takes a backseat. A good example is again kind of analogy to the fact that oh, we need an extra battery. We need a larger battery to go into into this phone. It's very similar to that. What happens to doing operations is that. Um, people really don't know what type of IT equipment is going to be deployed in the data center. So cooling and power kind of uh, um, take a back seat compared to the overall process management. Oh, we need a lot of data. We need to know which teams are asking for this IT equipment. We need to know uh, how we're going to power this up. But the fact that there's an engineering problem fundamentally at play is actually ignored. What I mean by that is if the engineer who's designed the data center takes into account that if you deploy X amount of kilowatts of, of power in this area, this can have a negative impact. That is then not accounted for in the operational because there's a huge learning gap between what the design engineers do and what the owner operators do. And that, unfortunately, comes down to a thermal piece because servers have to be cooled. And if servers get hot, the performance goes down, and then so on and so forth. You start to you can start to paint the picture. So really that interesting problem exists where there's a lot of upfront thermal management work that is done but nothing really when the data center is actually operating. And that's where we see a lot of the problems emanating is that um, the, the hotspot issues, the efficiency issues, they all kind of come out from an operational data center because during design, you can build the best data center you can. You can design the best data center, but it's how you start to use it. It's almost analogous to buying a car up the lot. You know, you, you buy a car based on mileage and safety and, you know, horsepower, but then do you really know if you're getting the mileage, the safety, and the horsepower when you're on the, car, uh, on the road? Because the testing is done in very ideal conditions. The data center is almost like that because it's a real product, and you're not going to get the same efficiency and, and the metrics that, you thought you would get when you designed because those are two different aspects of, of the whole data center um, design and operational piece. So now it's not a simple thing to do. What kind of engineering support do you offer your clients to help them use your solution properly to make sure that they get it right? Because I mean, it's not something they can just simply wave in the direction of the problem and make it go away. Right, that's correct. So I think I think there's it's it's a combination of, of, of things. Obviously, as a as a as a as a company, Future Cities, we provide software solutions. We we develop um, essentially we're the industry leader in creating data center simulation software uh, for design mm-hmm. and also for operations. We have a very strong footing with the engineering firms uh, where we provide software and also we provide training and we provide our education to them to say this is how you use the software, but don't just use the software because this is how you click from point A to point B, but think about the kind of problem you want to be able to solve. You know, are you, what mm-hmm. kind of data center are you looking to, to, to build or design? And we usually work with our clients very closely on that space. Our real challenges lie in trying to educate the owner-operators in really what the, the fundamental problems, which again comes back to power and cooling. You know, the, it all, it's almost a, an assumption that airflow is abundantly available in a data center. 
and that somehow Airflow will find its way into the inlet of a server. And we're trying to, whenever we engage with the client, we try to explain to them that this is necessarily not true. A IBM server or an HP server or a Dell server, if you look at the characteristics of them from a power and cooling standpoint, they're all very different. They all behave differently from an Airflow standpoint, and that's the critical piece is that the IT changes that are brought into the data center um, make the main change. So for us to be able to, to uh, to be able to tackle that problem, we do two things. One is obviously work with our owner-operator clients who are owning the data centers and, and try to educate them on the the importance of using simulation upfront. And we provide a, uh, a software that really plugs into the overall change management process. Because if you think about it, data center operations all about change management. Somebody says, I need, I need X amount of servers, it goes into procurement, it goes into change management, then people have to install it, mm -hmm. and we are inserting our, our simulation tools within that process so that we can be the right piece within the entire, mm -hmm. we can be the right cog in the overall process to keep everything moving and keep the efficiency rates high and also the resilience rates high. Right. Now, um, okay, so where do they go for more information? What's the URL? So our URL is uh, www.futurefacilities.com, and over mm -hmm. there you'll find the products that, that we provide. Uh, Six Sigma DCX is our data center-centric platform, and Six Sigma ET is our electronics cooling platform. Uh, at the end of the day, Alex, is that there's a, there's, this is a supply chain issue, right? So uh, from a thermal standpoint, if somebody's designing a server, that server will find its way in a data center. There's no other way to look at it. How do you how do you connect the guy designing the server to the guy operating and installing that server is really what we're trying to achieve. We're trying to create a common operating system that can essentially connect the engineer way on the left-hand side to the owner-operator who's way on the right-hand side. And that's really our, our hope is that we can educate and connect those two guys because that's really where the best stories are going to be told and that's how the two people who are really vested in making the best product are going to be able to talk and connect to each other and hopefully find a way to solve the overall problem. Mm -hmm. I agree with you completely. The, like, as I said earlier, that's the beautiful part is that uh, it is such a uh, agreement-conducive environment because we're all trying to work towards a goal. But unfortunately, Akhil, this is a podcast and we do have time limits. So I, but before I let you go, I always give my guests the opportunity to have the last word on my uh, podcast and it could be a little bit more about uh, your uh, Sigma software. It could be a little bit more about uh, the company or just a tip for our audience, but the floor is yours. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Alex. Um, I mean, the product will speak for itself. I think for me, um, the, the reason why I like working with Future Disease from a personal standpoint is the fact that I can do something different. I can bring new technology to people. I can connect with people. And at the end of the day, I think technology should empower people's lives. And that's what I believe in. That's why we make Six Sigma, our, our product suite is designed to help the user empower their lives. So we believe in, in allowing you to do more. I, I always believe in that sort of hashtag do more. It, it might sound cheesy, but at the end of the day, it's, it's just more about empowering the lives of the engineers and, and give them more time to do other things in their personal lives. You know, that's really why we make technology. And, and for me, as an engineer, that's the, that's the, the motivation factor is, is I can help people so that they can actually do more in their personal lives, not necessarily do more in their professional lives. You know? So that's, that's my mm -hmm. take on it. 
Very cool. Well, Akil, thank you again so much for taking the time to be on the show. I really appreciate you coming by. And, uh, well, we have to do this again sometime. But for now, I'm going to let you go. So thanks. Alex, appreciate your time, and thank you for all listening. Oh, the pleasure is mine. And I'd like to thank everybody out there in the audience for taking the time to be with us. We wouldn't be here without you. Tell your friends. This is Alex Paul for Power Systems Design. Have a great day.